from the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell, and West. To Chamberlain, he's got it! Jerry West made it from the other side of the mid-court strike! To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. And Magic Johnson is out there celebrating! Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. A time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe. From way outside. Got it! Oh, man! Gets it to LeBron. For three for the win! Yes! And rings were handed out like candy. Here's Jordan. Yes. It's Duncan Dynasty with your host, Garrett Bougay, and it starts right now. Welcome to Duncan Dynasty alongside my co-host, Corbin Ford. I am Garrett Bougay. And uh, this week, we've got part two of our discussion with Alex West of Red Team Scouting on the 2000 Western Conference Finals between the Portland Trailblazers and the Los Angeles Lakers. If you missed part one from last week, I urge you to check that out. And uh, also, I, uh, I did an article for Rip City Project as well on this series, so if you want some uh, a written version of uh, what you get here. Uh, I was able to uh, to get some stuff in that article that I didn't have time to express on the podcast. But without further ado, enjoy part two. Moving on to game five, you know, Portland in a dire situation, down 3-1, going on the road in a elimination game in L.A. But uh, this game, to me, is the Scottie Pippen game. He was just absolutely terrific on both ends of the floor. You know, he obviously was great defensively throughout, but the offense came and, came and went at times. But in Game 5, he was aggressive from the get-go, and uh, he put his, uh, his fingerprints all over this contest. Oh, yeah, and he did arguably the worst game um, of the series for him the previous game. So for him to come back, this is exactly why you see the Blazers acquired him. He has not only the mentality, you know, to, to get there, you have the experience, you know how to put your, your your touch and have your presence felt throughout the game. And this is one that, you know, probably this season before the Blazers probably fold. You know, you see what happens later as, as, as Scotty's play kind of um, depreciates a little bit more, um, and, you know, in, in, as he gets later on. But this is one where he still has enough to enforce his will. He is all over, played major minutes, um, and like you said, had the most well-rounded game, um, especially for a bounce-back game, and one that Portland needed to win that you probably don't if you don't have Sky taking the lead, even with talented guys like Rasheed Wallace, who, you know, tied for highs and scoring for the Blazers with Pippen. Yeah, the, uh, I just had a few kind of stray thoughts outside of, of Pippen's contribution that, I, that I'll uh, uh, throw out there. You know, I, I remember as a kid loving uh, Damon Stoudemire's free-throw routine and emulating that. It's, it's, so, uh, it's so belabored. He, he takes a dribble, then he slowly bends his knees and, and does that five straight times. But I remember doing that in the driveway. Uh, and loving that, uh, but uh, another another couple of things, you know, in, in reference to Shaq, Bob Costas had one of the, maybe the dumbest quotes I've ever heard of an announcer, uh, he, he says, if Shaq was 6'1", 190, instead of 7'1", 325, I think he could still play and play well in the league. That was one where I had to, like, sit and think about what he said, and, like, what did it mean when he said it, and what is he trying to get across, because... I still, like you said, like, I don't understand what it is he's trying to say. It's like, 
the whole time we had talked about and thought about and worked on and seen Shaquille O'Neal as this physical presence, and for Bob Costas to say, well, if he weren't what he is, he would still be great. I didn't know, I didn't understand what it was he was trying to get at, and I didn't understand the quote at all, but it was just so perfect. There's, there are just a few little quotes through this series, and that was what I had written down as well, where it was like, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's uh, it, it's it's bizarre, you know. It'd be one thing if if Shaq was, you know, a very good shooter, ball handler, you know, one of those real skilled guys like a Carl Anthony Towns. Maybe you could say, you know, he could he could still score. But I mean, yeah, Shaq was completely as great as he was. He was it was so much predicated on just his physical dominance out there. Yeah, you take that away. No, I I, I don't think he would even be good at a Division One college level at six one one ninety. But uh, another thing that impressed me about Shaq watching this game in particular is he's so good when he's posting up. Even prior to catching the ball, when he realizes he can spin off the defender to catch lobs. He had one. He had one play in in this game where the ball was on the left wing. He was posting up on the block. He tells the guy to pass it to the corner, and as the pass is getting to the corner, he spins off Sabonis and the lob for the major slam. But just that recognition of of when he can he can uh, spin off and, and and get an easy two is really impressive. Oh yeah, looking back now, it's like, oh, he was dominant. But you know, you've you've seen the derisive comments. Oh, he's just big and. Or he can just overpower people, and you know he's a goofball and all that. But a lot is not made, in my opinion, in watching the series again of just like you just point out that one play, Garrett, the, the basketball IQ and the touch around the basket, and the moves. It was a, he was a talented post player who just so happened to be seven two and physically dominating. Great feet. I mean, shows it off in that just the, the spin, the quickness, the way he gets to where he wants to. The other part of that is just. A little touch of sadness that we never got from Sabonis in the NBA. Because if you watch that exact play, you can see as he starts to go, Sabonis knows what's exactly about to happen. And later in Game 7, they try the same thing again, and Sabonis beats it because he jumps the pass. And that that was a little moment where I watched and I thought, man, you know, 26-27 pre-Achilles rupture in both legs, uh, Sabonis would have been just such a fun foil for Shaquille O'Neal and for Hakeem and for Michael Jordan and for all these great players who played in that era. It would have just been so much fun to have a guy who, as you can see throughout this series, is a statue but manages to impose his will, manages to be a big contributor on this team despite just being so far past his physical prime. And, and that was just a little moment of, wow, Shaq is unbelievable, he's amazing, but at the same time it was like, wow, we, we really didn't get all of our beat as a bonus, which is kind of sad. You have to go digging through YouTube to find the clips of, of what he was in his prime, and uh, that was just a moment where I really noticed that. Absolutely, yeah. I'm a I'm a huge fan of Sabonis. I actually did a, a Sabonis article on uh, Rip City Project called uh, Six Surplus Seasons of Sabonis," where I kind of inserted him in earlier Blazers teams in those uh, you know uh, teams that played between the late '80s and early '90s, faced off against Jordan, and, and what those teams would have been like if Sabonis was playing. They would have been uh, they would have been really nasty, but. You're absolutely right, though. Despite his physical limitations, still made a, a positive impact for this for this Blazers team. And a, another note I had, you know, Steve Smith, as good of a scorer 
as uh, as he he was. You know, he obviously could could score on the block. He could score off the dribble. He had great range. He had a couple of deep threes in this series. I noticed at times, though, that he wasn't the greatest passer. He, he had moments where he would drive in and, and Sabonis was open and Shaq came over to help and, and Smith still attempted his shot. That was uh, responsible for a few of Shaq's blocks throughout the series. But that was, that was a little thing I noticed that maybe a bit of, was, a, was a bit of a limitation for, for Steve Smith's game. Yeah, played really well, did a lot of things very particularly his shooting, did some facilitation, finds a little nice little pick-and-roll game, as I alluded to. I mean, there are things that Steve Smith does, but, yeah, there are a couple guys on this team that when they get moving downhill, uh, Sheed is one of them for all his effectiveness. Um, Steve Smith is one. Damon Stoudemire is one. That when they get into that mode that they're looking to score, it kind of becomes single-mindedness, and that was something about Steve Smith that the first thing I took away was man, I did not appreciate Steve Smith enough at the time, just how much he could do and, and how perfect he would have been that he was born 20 years too early, uh, being 6'7". He's listed as 6'7", but he's got a good inch on Kobe. Uh, I think he's probably more in that 6'8", right? range. Six, but eight, yeah. being, a, being a big fella, being able to shoot that 40% clip, being able to run a little bit of initiation on the offense, just, man, that's a tremendously great player. But like you said, Garrett, there were these holes in his game where you could tell that Steve Smith had been the central focus of a lot of offenses and had been asked to be an endpoint as opposed to a play-through player. Exactly. We mentioned the, the cross-screening action that the Blazers ran, and they didn't do a lot of counters, a lot of things to, to mix it up. But one, uh, I did notice a couple times in this Game 5 that they, they did seem to have a, a counter to, to what the Lakers were doing in terms of, of getting over that screen. They, they had one where they would set that cross-screen for Wallace, and then he would immediately go into a pick-and-roll up top and run to set the screen for Steve Smith. And uh, that freed up Smith to, to hit a couple of threes in the second half. So, uh, uh, you know, despite the fact that I thought Dunleavy didn't do enough in terms of, uh, you know, running some counters and making some adjustments, that was one that I, that I did notice. Yeah, they didn't do a lot of screen-the-screener stuff at all. That was something that where they do find some success in this, and then they just kind of bury it um, in, in that screen-the-screener where you, you, you get them either switching or you get them trailing, and then she can just go into that next move, can set that pick-and-roll, and now you've got a defender who is essentially two screens behind. Right. Um, the, the other problem with that is they don't really have the – without Damon Stoudemire, who does not play, plays 14 minutes in this game, they don't really have a guy who can initiate in that way. Um, it's a lot of pick-and-pop stuff. It's a lot of methodical. With, with, with Scotty Pippen running a lot of it, with Steve Smith running a lot of the offense, it's very methodical. So it's a very you measured approach. And, and running that screen, the screener, or that Spain pick-and-roll, however you want to you know, identify it, if it's kind of a ram screen or uh, what have you, they don't really have the personnel because what you want to do with something like that and that screen-to-screener action is you want your guard to be able downhill in his dominant hand. And they never really had that going because the, the idea, or at least conceptually, what I thought at the time as I was watching was, okay, they're trying to attack Shaq on his back foot. They want, him, they want Shaq backing up into uh, the play, and it just never quite materialized because they didn't have anybody who could turn the corner at that, at that high rate of speed, take that one dribble, and then be in a threatening position in the lane. And so it was good and it was 
alluded to something that would have been a much greater success, but this is the trade-off with Damon Stoudemire, is either you have him and you have to deal with the limitations, or you don't have him and you have another set of limitations that kind of factor into what you can do offensively. Yeah, absolutely right. And Stoudemire, of course, you know, there were times where he did turn the corner on Shaq, but then just blew the layup, so there was the that issue as well. Uh, but uh, Portland with an impressive 96-88 Game 5 victory. Uh, Corbin, was there any uh, was there any final thoughts you had about Game 5 before we move to Game 6? Um, not really. I mean, it was just a tough game that the Blazers needed to get. Um, in this case, they turned the tables with, fate, with them having a really good third quarter. Um, and I think that was kind of the answer there. And then just holding on to the fourth um, to get to Game 6. Yeah, so... They, they head back to Portland for Game 6. The Blazers uh, with some momentum off of that impressive Game 5 victory. And uh, they get off to another great start, especially on the offensive end. And uh, Stoudemire actually contributing like he did in Game 3 at home, uh, contributing here in the first quarter. He actually was, was making some of those uh, rim attacks and also, you know, pushing the pace. That was that was another key thing, and I, and I think it's been a it's been a key feature to successful offenses throughout the history of the NBA. Is even if you're not getting a transition or even a semi-transition opportunity, just pushing the basketball, getting it into the half court, and and setting up your offense with even 18 or, or 17 left on the shot clock is is so crucial to being able to run through all your actions. Like you said, like it doesn't pushing the pace is not necessarily transition. It's not necessarily leak out passes and dunks. It is getting into your offense before you're attacking the teeth of a set defense. And that's something that there's a point of emphasis with the Blazers going in this game. They are attacking early. They're making Shaq kind of defend from behind. They're making everybody on that team kind of defend from behind. And look at the pace of this game. It's an 84 possession game. It's not a huge jump either way. I mean, it kind of falls right in the spectrum. I think this the, this is actually even the slowest... Yeah, this is even the, the slowest game in, in the series, but in in that, you see these quick hit-ahead, particularly into Rashid, who uh, Sheed is going down, finding his man, kind of feeling him out, and, and setting himself up to uh, to score early, early in the shot clock, and that's the difference in it's not a transition game, but in some ways it is a pick-up-the-pace game, despite not being necessarily reflective on the total pace of the game, because most of that's just how the NBA works, and that also the Lakers wanted to play slower than a glacier, but <laughs> they do find themselves um, with with a, with an option here. And then the other thing offensively for, uh, for Portland that is a really big deal is this is weirdly... Um, there, there are a couple of days between this game and game five, and that extra day of rest, they touch on it in the broadcast, that extra day of rest for Arvidas Sabonis makes a big difference. He is more mobile. He is more – it felt like he has a bigger impact on this game than any other game in the series. And they talk about rest, whether it's rest or not, I don't know. Um, but this is definitely his biggest team contribution. He has like 10, he has 10 points, 11 rebounds, and 6 assists in this game. And you definitely feel the way he stretches the floor. You feel it more in this game than any other game to me. Yeah, absolutely. It, uh, the, the, the Blazers went, uh, you know, despite the success of, of Stoudemire, they, they went with some, some Grant at the four lineups to, to add some, some additional size 
and uh, you know the, the likes of, of Bonzi Wells and Grant played around 33 minutes total, and and Wells had his best game of the series. He went eight of 13, scored 20 points in in under 19 minutes. And, you know, the Blazers, again, like Game 3, were able to attack Kobe on the block with reasonable success. Yeah, Bonzi Wells' fourth quarter in this game is is unreal. Bonzi has this really great fourth quarter, and this is when we learn, of course, I love these old broadcasts and you get to pick things up. We learn that Bonzi is named after his mom craving bonbons when she was pregnant, <laughs> yeah. which is just a, a great little tip that they picked up in the broadcast, but he... This is where I said earlier, like he's a big man masquerading as a guard. Like this is what they did. They just found this little niche, and Bozzi does not play as well in Game Seven. I mean, there are so many things that kind of come unraveled. But you see what they can do. What this team has the capability of doing when you do get Arvita Sabonis. And I, and I hate to harp on this point, but I am going to continue to go back to it. If you have a traditional center in the game. If you have a four that can't space and a five that can't space, you can't ever take advantage of what Bonzi Wells can do. But because Bonzi Wells comes in and he plays 12 minutes with Arvita Sabonis, they both play the entire fourth quarter. She plays a good amount with him as well. You see him have the space necessary to do those. They'll do this thing. They do this like flex action thing where the, it's play side. Or it's weak side, and the forward will screen, and then Bonzi will go like he's rolling through for a flex cut, and then he'll just stop. And he's right in the middle of the lane, and, and his, his man is trailing, so they're playing behind him. And that only works when you have a 4 and a 5 who can space. And to me, this was this game six is like the moment where you see what the Trailblazers are capable of, and the moment where you see the most modern iteration of what they do. It's like, oh man, they got a guard who can post up, who can really take advantage of his size and his abilities and all these things, and they do it because they, you have a guy in Rashid Wallace and a guy in Arvita Sabonis who can step out and hit those threes, which by the way, Bob Costas thinks that's like basically alien uh, in this game. He talks so many times, he touches on like, boy. Arvita Sabonis stepping outside. He has that kind of range. He's one of the only centers in the league that can do this, which is very funny in retrospect because now that's what we look for in bigs. But uh, <laughs> it, was like an, it was like an alien had come down out from Lithuania and just landed on the court. The funny thing is that Bonzi Wells' mini explosion was a sign of things to come because he would set a record that wasn't broken until Marcus Aldridge in his last couple of um, games of Portland in the playoffs. He was scoring 45 against the Mavericks in 2003. And that same type of thing, of, of action, getting in the middle of the lane, being able to finish um, that reliable jump shot, just being an anomaly for that time, I guess, in terms of being an undersized guard who played bigger than his size, but could definitely was a good finisher and could convert. And the Blazers utilized that to full effectiveness in this game. Uh, another thing I noticed, and this was too, was the fact that you're attacking Kobe. You know, you're kind of trying to um, utilize Shaq. I mean, expose him defensively and it didn't help on this end that we were talking about uh, Phil Jackson not playing any games both guys uh, in between Brian and, and Shaq played exactly you know all 48 minutes I mean they were getting it in and, and to be fair Kobe had a huge high scoring game it was a game 7 but he hit six threes, um, literally half of everything that the Lakers converted from downtown again we noticed that you know in this game especially this was one game where the Lakers shot decently from 3 definitely better than the Blazers won 1 for 8 and yet still, you know, just didn't even have it. Well, one of those threes, though, to, on top of that, Corbin, like, there are, they 
hit six threes in the or they hit eight threes in the fourth quarter, which yep. cost us the lose to as a as a record, as a playoff record at that time. A lot of those are after the point where the game is in any contention. Like, right. They hit, a, they hit a bunch of threes, and you know, as you look at it on the back end, you're like, man, this was in, particularly Shaw. I think Shaw hits like he he went nuts there in that quarter, but yep. like it felt like none of them mattered, which was interesting. Yeah, the uh, Kobe Kobe ended up hitting six of nine threes, but yeah, I believe four of those were in the last three minutes when, yeah, the game seemed already decided. Speaking to Sabonis, uh, he played 45 minutes, was a plus 12. Uh, so yeah, he, he and, and of course that double-double, he had a he had a major impact. And, and again, because Sabonis play, was able to play most of the game, I think Dunleavy was able to play Brian Grant 10-plus minutes at the four, which again, I thought was was a decently successful lineup for them that they just didn't go to enough. It just creates so much comfortability with this Trailblazers team. When, when you get productive minutes from Sabonis, that's the thing. Like, as you watch through the series, as you watch them, like, sequentially, you're like, man, basically, they even though he's not the most important offensive player, even though he's not a hub or anything else, when you get productive minutes from Arvidas Sabonis, it opens up the entire rest of the game. Because, like you said, you can play Brian Grant in his natural position as a four-man. You can play Bonzi Wells more often because there's more space for him to operate. And, like, all these things, this coalescence of perfect, you know, circumstances for for Portland happens right here. And I think a lot of it is, like you said, like you have a guy who is just playing at 18 to 25 feet, who can facilitate, who can do a lot of things. And it leads to some really, really good things for this Portland Trailblazers team. Yeah, Corbin, I, I wanted to get your take on, on Kobe's performance in this game. He ended up with, with 33 points, and as I referenced, the 6 of 9 from downtown. Uh, he also had a monster right-hand slam on Sabonis to start the second quarter. Uh, yeah, that, that, was, that was sad. Again, uh, two people I felt bad for the entire series were the big men for the Blazers. And you mentioned Sabonis just because at this point, you know, the mind was definitely willing, but the, the flesh couldn't do it. And started moving. And then for Grant, which is being overmatched, but that slam, that, that was monster. That was, that was yikes. Again, just a sign of things that were to come from Kobe. And I thought that uh, Game 7 was Kobe's high scoring game, but actually this Game 6 was it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, and him being able to convert a pretty decent clip, like you said, the three ball coming in when the game was over just to make the score more respectable. But kind of asserting himself, and in this one you could kind of see the tug a little bit between um, sharing the shot, Kobe, dude, because it still hasn't been even, you know, Kobe got almost 10 more attempts than Shaq did, you know, converted just efficiently. And some of that was just the way that, you know, they were playing in terms of Shaquille O'Neal, but others was just Kobe saying, all right, I'm, I'm going to start ramping my shot attempts a little bit more here. And again, just a sign of, of it, it was weird looking back on the series as a whole, but just in general, knowing how it plays out, and I love that historical aspect of it, and seeing little tremors here, okay, now we're going to go through this guy, now we're going through that guy, okay, now we have um, a couple of games of Zen where everything works together, and, and you kind of see that happening, so where this triumphant game um, seven for the Lakers, but this game six had one more kind of back and forth was trying to figure it out um, and really weren't even in to the end. And that, that took, like you said, a, a monster um, game from three from both, you know, Kobe and Shaw, who went nuts. And Shaw in general, um, this entire series, from three-point range especially, was just a monster. I think he shot something like looking at the score or looking at the stats now, but he was like everything he was touching as far as shooting from three was going. It was a complete opposite of um, uh, Ron Harper from three for them. And so that game was just another example of it, but just in general, 
stats. I think he comes back in game seven and hits a three um, in the fourth quarter. But, like, he was another contributor, and, and I had touched on this earlier, but, like, this is another instance where Shaw's not really a point guard, and he finds himself in this triangle in this perfect position to be a catch-and-shoot guy, to be a threat where he does not have to initiate. And um, it is interesting how the Lakers kind of unearthed these guys because they ran the triangle, because Phil had such a great mastery of the game, and because they had Kobe and Shaq. Shaq, underrated passer. I'm going to say that till I die. Um, he... <laughs> He has a tip pass in this game six. He, somebody is off offensive rebound. He comes up and he jumps up and he just tips it to Ron Harper. Just kind of tips it down and it's so perfect. But um, having these smaller guards who don't have to initiate and still can contribute is such a really critical factor, particularly later on. And then even again in um, in the, in the uh, nine and ten seasons with Gasol, uh, having guys who don't necessarily have to facilitate becomes such a big part of this five championship run for Los Angeles. And I think a lot of that speaks to Phil and what he can do, uh, but a lot of it speaks to the secondary passing that you get from a Kobe Bryant who, you know, like I said, played pretty well within himself a couple of games, and I think he even, you know, averaged about six assists a game. Uh, but you, you do see what he and Shaq can do when it's not necessarily on these Brian Shaws, the Derek Fishers of the world, to have to initiate uh, that they can just play off the ball. Yeah, the uh, the the versatility also that the, that Lakers trio provides. You know, you've got Harper with the defense, you've got Shaw with the shooting, and Fisher is kind of a combination of the two. Uh, so, so that versatility is nice, and and uh, you know that's that's a that's a pretty good recipe for for a championship level team when you've got role players that can that can provide different things at at, at different positions. But uh, you know the the interesting thing too, you know, with all those threes that were fired up and made in the fourth quarter of uh, of Game Six, it led to, and I'm not positive on this, but it might have been the only quarter in the series where both teams scored 30 plus points. The Blazers outscored the Lakers 32 to 30 in the period, ended up winning the game 103-93. And from Portland's perspective, we mentioned Bonzi Wells and and his great fourth quarter. Smith and Wells combined for 46 points on 35 true shooting attempts, so really efficient from the Blazers. And it sets up a do-or-die Game 7 back in L.A., and the Blazers have all the momentum. (laughs) Coming down the stretch, like as you watch these games back-to-back-to-back-to-back, and you you just think to yourself, man, this is going to be a really tough hole to climb out of. And luckily, Corbin, uh, you know, big assist from from uh, Dick Mavetta and Steve Jabby. Oh, <laughs> you saw that right now. Just seven on five, super helpful for the Lakers coming home. Just to have that, you know, having a couple of guys in great jerseys to just really help them out on the stretches. <laughs> I knew you were going to get your thing. I was waiting for this. <laughs> Contributions that you don't ever see coming, and so just, just right at the perfect. <laughs> the only person I'm, I'm attributing that whole uh, timely contribution to was Brian Shaw. For this. Let's, let's just get down to this guy. I can't with Alex right now. Well, I mean, I, 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 I gotta say, I'm kind of in agreement with Alex here. I've got about two pages of notes for. I've got two pages of notes for Game Seven, and about half of the uh, half of the points are uh, in relation to the officiating. But uh, starting uh, starting game seven, you know, Portland again gets off to a great start. Really balanced offensive attack. They're up 19 to nine after back to back pull up threes from the likes of of Pippen and Smith. 
But then, you know, Arvita Sabonis picks up two fouls pretty early on, and this is where Shaq, you know, his his dominant nature, we've talked about all this uh, episode, you know, he, he just starts uh, wreaking havoc on the Blazers' front line. Yeah, that, that, whole, that whole idea of, of keeping Sabonis in there, because he has the, the uh, IQ and, and the, the actual just the size just to stay with Shaquille O'Neal, that second foul is just brutal. And Shaq really starts to take advantage of it, both on the glass. Uh, he, I think he has two offensive rebounds there in the second quarter, both of which he ends up putting right back in. And that is so much of the series the killer for Portland. It's kind of the silent killer because it doesn't get a lot of press, but it is – the, the Lakers' ability to get second shots or to tip out rebounds or to control the glass, and a lot of that comes with Sabonis off the court. And we see a couple of times in this game seven, as you mentioned, Garrett, the, the, the second foul that he picks up, and then again when he picks up his fifth foul later in the game, there are moments where uh, the Lakers really kind of feel that blood in the water or, or find themselves just because it is, it's easier when you don't have Sabonis to deal with, when you don't have him being just making things difficult. I mean, nobody can really stop Shaq, but he does help make things difficult. And the Lakers pick their moments really well and, and just find times that uh, they, they, they can really attack this Portland defense. I mean, I have to say, though, if we're going to, we talk about the rest, we talked about the Lakers taking advantage, you're right, but Portland had a really good, I mean, Wallace, for one, had a spectacular game. Well, let, let me let me just uh, let me just correct you on that. Wallace had a spectacular first three quarters. Right. Okay, but, but, but okay, okay, I get what you're saying. But the, the fourth quarter, you I lay that on all the Blazers. If we're gonna if we're gonna break this down, Doctor Jack style, we kind of have to look at the fact that okay, going into half, what three? I'm trying to have the score here. Yeah, they're three at the half. They're three at the half, right? Then they come in. I mean, we can, talk, we can talk conspiracies, we can talk whatever, but if you're just talking about the, 
Right. If you're just talking about the basketball on the court, the game was there for Portland to win it. Now, the the, the foul situation does come into play, and it does play. Uh, it takes a big toll, particularly there at the end of the fourth quarter, uh, with about five or six minutes to go. It takes a big toll on the game. Uh, but like you said, I mean. They're not hitting threes. They go through that stretch where they just cannot hit anything. And I think that there is – I think we talk about the refs a lot. Uh, when we talk about this series, this is the thing, you know, what, was there some kind of conspiracy? Steve Smith and Shaq had that infamous go-round on Inside the NBA about it a couple of years back. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and, and C-Web is sitting there as well as they're doing this roundtable thing. And Shaq's just kind of ribbing them both. But the, the part – the part about this that is notable, conspiracies aside, is this game is it's not poorly refed. If, if we set aside the qualifiers of whether it was poorly refed or poorly officiated or whatever, it is undeniably refed differently than all the games before. And particularly five and six. Five and six feel like kind of open. They're quick hitters. They're they're good games. Not a ton of free throws. But this game just gets refed from the word go. It is a drag the entire time. It just feels like a slog. And the Game 7s are that way. There's a lot of butterflies. There's a lot of things going on. But there's one call. There's one call in this game that just, just it, it, it was like bright red flashers. It was like, what the hell are you doing? Pardon my language. Uh, the second quarter, about 7.30 to go in the second quarter. Steve Smith is just running this little, he's little slash thing. There's a, there's a screen for him. And he caught, runs a little cut down the lane and he lays it in and we hear the whistle blow and it's like, man, well, that didn't look like a foul. And sure enough, Steve Jebby calls a palming call yeah. in game seven yeah. of the <laughs> And, you know, whether or not, like, whether or not calls one way or the other, and I have my opinion, and Corbin, you have yours, and Garrett, you have yours about what the officiating did in this game. There's an undeniable fact that this game is ref differently, which to me is detrimental to this game, this series, unbelievable basketball, and then at the end of it, you come into this game seven, and for the rest to play such a big, big factor um, with Dick Bavetta, with Steve Jammy. Steve Jammy makes a couple of calls, and I'm just like, what are you doing? And, it, and it's not particularly bad for either team. It's just to have them play such a big role in a game seven was really disappointing to me. Yeah, the, you know, the... Right, I'm not about to to say that you know this game was rigged or something like that. But when you when you look at a game, I I tend to look at it as okay, you know if was the game officiated poorly and who did the the blown calls benefit? And it seems obvious to me that the 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 missed calls benefited the Lakers more often than not in this ball game. You mentioned that that, that hesitation dribble. I mean, Steve Smith was was known for that move. He had done that move thousands of times, and uh, it, it didn't seem like a, a palming violation at all. There was also a play where Bonzi Wells drives in, and Glenn Rice comes over late and takes a hit in the shoulder and falls, and they call that a charge. Uh, and, you know, Sabonis' fifth foul also seemed to be a clear hook on uh, on Shaquille O'Neal. Yeah, exactly. Like, there, there were just so many calls where it was like, you know, I, I have a friend who played minor league baseball talk to him all the time and he's a pitcher he played minor league baseball and he says this you know he says i don't mind bad umpires he said i mind uh, inconsistent umpires he said if the strike zone is one way one day and a different way the next day it's really hard for me to adjust and find the zone and i think that's so true and you see it in this game it's not that they they're necessarily picking a sign it's just 
the, the strike zone has completely changed for what is a block and what is a charge and what is a palm. Like, how, how are you calling palms in Game 7 and in the NBA Finals? Uh, and, you know, we can go. Now, if you want to break down the film on the Sabonis, Shaquille O'Neal, who was hucking who all the time, this is one of those NFL offensive linemen things. You can call holding on every play on right. either one of those guys. Like, the hooks went, but, like, that call, just, it was a no call the day before or two days before in game six, four days before in game five, th- these were no calls that all of a sudden were becoming quick whistles. And I think like that just really takes the game away from what it could be where the players, this great group of players who have gone to war seven times with each other and puts them in the hands a little bit too much of a Dick Mavetta, of a Hugh Evans, of a Steve Javi. And frankly, this becomes a trend. I mean, for better or for worse, the mid two thousands in the NBA. Now, dare I say the D word, Tim Donaghy, but uh, <laughs> the, the middle of the two thousands becomes known for the ref with the big personality, with Bennett Salvatore, with Dick Bavetta, with um, Joey Crawford, who is infamous for throwing Tim Duncan out of a game for smiling. This is a this is that something that is going to become. This is the precursor game to what the middle of the two thousands is going to be, where the refs are inserting. Oh, Money McCutcheon can't forget Money McCutcheon. Oh, no. They're inserting themselves into the game unnecessarily, and I felt like it really took away from with a guy with no vested rooting interest. Twenty years later, it felt like in Game Seven, the inconsistency really detracted from what had been a just. Fantastic. Yeah, this is a great game. I mean, and like Corbin said, I don't want to think that, like, the game is there for Portland to win in the fourth quarter. It's there. It's sitting on the table. And if you just hit two, three, you know, four of those 13 shots, you win this game and you go on and you probably win an NBA Finals. But it was the inconsistent refing, I think, it was the thing that bothered me the most about it. I was playing up a little, kind of a tongue-in-cheek defense. Um, but at the same time, <laughs> I'm not going to lie, like watching it, and it's funny that someone who had a vested interest, even knowing how it plays out. You know, I've watched this game a couple times before, and it was still weird going, mm, that's, that's questionable. The Palmer one especially, because we started with, with Miami, we started with him in Atlanta, that was, that was horrible. And you're right, this was like, you could see again the beginning of an era in a way, where the refs were getting their personalities and they were starting to become, enforcing more of their will on the call. Like, I'm making, I'm the ref, I saw, and it's like, I get it, and yes, as Garrett said, the great evaluation of just like seeing, okay, these calls are inconsistent, who are they benefiting? But also, a lot of these calls that have to be made, you know, you play within the game, certain things where it's like, you reference even the technical with Tim Duncan, it almost got me with the one with um, Rasheed Wallace, where it's like, okay, you can let some of that go, understanding the place and when the players decide the game. And when the refs are getting involved, it gets there. But for me, I mean, I have to reference it as, as just a Lakers historian. Once it went Bryant to Shaq, it was over. Well, yeah, <laughs> and, and not to bury, and not to bury the lead on that play. I mean, that's yeah, the yeah. iconic moment. That's the iconic moment from this game seven. That move that I think the the, the look of surprise on Shaquille O'Neal's face is what makes it to me. He rolls off that, and Kobe throws a perfect pass, and there's just this like moment where Shaquille's eyes are so wide, and he's running down the floor, and he's doing the airplane thing, and there's one tiny part of me that can't help but think like. Was Shaq surprised that Kobe threw him the ball? Like, I, just, I, I don't want to say that like, in a facetious way or anything no. like that, but like, he looked so surprised, so genuinely shocked. Not that they were going to the NBA Finals, which they were, and not that this is the nail in the coffin, which it is, but there's just this look where he just kind of looks like, wait, did that 
just happen? And to me, the thing that I looked at it as I watched it and I watched it again, I was like, is he surprised that Kobe threw that assist to him instead of taking the shot? That was what I took away from that wonderful, like historic NBA play that we always have that's so amazing that was on the uh, the commercials a few years back when they did the uh, NBA uh, I can't remember, Greatness is Waiting or whatever the slogan was where they had the little piano going amazing on. Amazing Happens. Yeah, or Amazing Happens, that's it. Uh, that was one of those great commercials. But just looking at it again, kind of taking the, the long view on it, the 20-year educated view on it, was he really just shocked that Kobe threw him the ball in a pivotal moment of the game? Uh, I, I think there definitely is some, something to that for sure. <laughs> But uh, yeah, we'll 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 get back to that uh, that moment here in a bit. I kind of wanted to go through the, the the whole second half of this game because I found it fascinating. You know, the again the third quarter was a was a vitals quarter throughout this series, and I thought a, a lot of times a lot of the games in this series, the Blazers, you know, they went to Wallace in the first quarter and, and got off to great starts, and then they kind of forgot about him in the third quarter in the second half. Uh, but in, in this Game 7, they were committed to getting Rasheed Wallace the basketball, and he was making the Lakers pay. And then, obviously, Steve Smith has this great run where uh, he puts up, I believe it was uh, seven straight points and, and gives the Lasers as much as a 16-point lead. But I also look at uh, Mike Dunleavy, and again, I mentioned in previous games, you know, they, they when they had good third quarters, he just left the starters in the entire period and you see the start of the fourth quarter. The Blazers have a cushion. They have an opportunity to rest guys like Pippen and Smith. And Dunleavy chooses not to. Yeah, he makes a couple of questionable calls down the, down the stretch in here. And you, you can't really quite figure it out. Like, I think in the third quarter, I, I don't remember how it goes, but Sabonis has three fouls. And then early in the third, he picks up, I mean, early in the fourth, he picks up his, third, his fourth foul. And you think to yourself, like, hey, okay, we're sitting on a cushion. There's 10 minutes to go or, high, you know, about 10.30 to go. I can't remember exactly how it went. And maybe we pull Sabonis here. He just played. This is the part, and Garrett, you said this so well. Like, Sabonis has just played the entire third quarter. He's been out there 12 straight minutes, and he picks up a quick one in the fourth. And you think to yourself, like, ah, 10 minutes. There's a lot of game to be played. I'm looking to get my guy out of there, my center, my big man, who's 35 years old with a with 100,000 miles on the odometer. I want to get him out of there. And that was, like, really early in that fourth quarter. That's the first thing that jumps off the page because you're like, what? yes, you've had a really great third quarter. Yes, you've built this tremendous lead. But if you don't have Sabonis, and, and we've harped on it, we've harped on it, we've harped on it as we watch through this whole series, if you don't have Sabonis, Winning this game becomes incredibly difficult, and, and of course we see Sabonis foul out with about five minutes to go in the game. And eventually, after his fourth foul or his fifth foul, he does pull him. Um, but you can't help but wonder, like he's a little bit fatigued. He's going to be reaching. The whistles are going to be coming in pretty quickly. Do you not just save him for three or four minutes, keep him from picking up that fifth foul, so you're sure you can get him all the way down the stretch? That's true. Yeah, a lot of that it goes back to the way again Dunleavy deployed and lineup rotations and his willingness and extensions to that and that carried on later on, you know, watching him with the Clippers and stuff at the helm there. So, yeah, it, it, it did come back to bite. Um, and it was unfortunate in the biggest game, but again, adjustments weren't um, easily to come by, even though they did happen for Dunleavy and the Blazers in that series. 
Yeah, and Portland, you know, a team that, that has this balanced offense. They don't rely on one single guy. You know, in this series, they got 23-plus points from Wallace. They got 18 from Smith and around 15 from Pippen. And the one guy that Dunleavy chooses to rest at the, the latter stages of the third quarter and to the start of the fourth is Rasheed Wallace, the, the young guy, the guy that probably, in my mind, has the best ability to play the entire second half and still be somewhat fresh. Whereas guys like Pippen and Smith, you that, that Blazers team still needs offensive production from those guys, and they just looked gassed down the stretch. And the, the other issue is you, you combine the fact that, that Pippen and Smith are gassed and, and don't have the energy to produce on offense, and then with the guy that you did rest, Wallace, comes back in in the fourth, and he's just ice cold. You can see why the Blazers just had such a terrible offensive fourth quarter. And there's, there's something to build on the, t- the back of that. Like, Sheed has a reputation that he eventually sheds in the 04 finals, becomes in, comes such a you know big contributor. But Sheed is carrying this reputation as a guy who does not want the ball down the stretch. Coming from his time in North Carolina, coming from his time with the Bullets um, earlier, and, and even here, like, Sheed has a reputation that he, in the first three quarters, he's the guy. And in the fourth quarter, this game does nothing to alleviate that reputation. He he doesn't really shy away from anything. He doesn't, you know, it's not like one of those moments where he doesn't want the ball. He has the ball and he takes it. But like you say, Gary, like, he just can't find it. Uh, the thing that those spin moves and those post ups and those the, the the hooks and all the things that he did in, in the first six games of the series and in the first three quarters of this game are just all of a sudden gone and he's drawn back iron a lot and he's missing left right which is something you don't see great shooters do that often he has one time he's on the left block he opens up in the middle of the lane and shoots and he just misses it to the left side of the rim and that's something like you don't see from Sheed very very often in this series at all you don't see him miss a lot of left rights you don't see him kind of kind of gack these shots that are there and he was carrying a reputation it kind of lives up to itself here that he doesn't he doesn't rise to the occasion and fortunately for him and for his career because i don't think we recognize sheet as a great player enough he's one of my all-time favorite players um, but you know unfortunately here he just does not live up to being that as great a player as he's been for however whether they're four times seven is 28 so 27 quarters of this series he's great and then for one quarter uh, well I guess for like 26 because he got ejected in the third quarter game one but you know for the vast majority of the series he's been great and then all of a sudden three for nine in the fourth quarter and, and he just kind of has to carry that stigma with him it's a shame it really was yeah and you know he he was not only that that offensive fulcrum that as you as you guys mentioned was was great throughout most of the series but defensively, I thought he was he was really great for this Portland team. I mean, obviously, Pippen was the best defensive player out there, but Wallace was really instrumental in their ability to double-team and, and, and rotate and, and get out. His mobility as a big man was, was so crucial, especially when we've talked about how Sabonis just uh, lacked any mobility whatsoever. Uh, but, you know, Wallace also had not only the offensive struggles in the fourth, but he had a possession where I noticed – the, the Lakers put up a shot, and, and he had the whole right side of the floor to box out Robert Ory. He doesn't box him out. A loose ball happens. Robert Ory picks it up. And then Ory, like, is, you know, five feet away from the basket. He just slowly dribbles out to the three-point line. Wallace decides not to guard him, and Ory just fires away and knocks it down. And it's another situation where you're just like, 
Do you not know who this guy is? This guy is Big Shot Bob. The 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 Blazers, you know, that lead slowly dwindling. The Lakers go on a, a fifteen to nothing run to tie the game at at seventy five, and then of course that that uh, the the fifth foul on Sabonis, which was a questionable call. Then you have the uh, Sabonis fouls out with two forty four left, and and Shaq knocks down both free throws to tie it at seventy seven. But then the Blazers, you know, have to bring in Brian Grant uh, to to try and slow down Shaq and. And he just had he had no answer. And this is the exact moment in the game where we talk about modern NBA, um, just all the things. Look, you are carrying a body of evidence that you know for a fact Brian Grant can't stop Shaquille O'Neal. You know it. You, you, uh, you can look him in the face. There are mounds of evidence at this point. And I think Brian Grant, good player, managed to contribute some different places uh, both before and after this. But like in this moment, he's just completely overmatched. And to me... And I, and I remember, like, as I was watching it, the first time, and then when I watched it again this morning, I'm watching, and I'm just thinking, why not go shoot at center here? Why not go shoot at center here? And, and, and that is, to me, like, this is the moment where, yes, it's very easy for me to armchair quarterback 20 years in the, in the past, but th- you have seen these unconventional lineups have so much success um, in this series with, with playing, like, four forwards at the same time. I don't understand why you go back with Brian Grant when you know they're going to try and work it to Shaq. Why don't you just change the axis of attack here? And, and to me, this is the big letdown. It's like when Sabonis fouls out and you're in a tough position, why not just try something that they literally had never tried and wasn't even in the zeitgeist and wasn't even anything that was in people's heads that you could play fours as fives? I mean, except for Brian Grant, I guess, here. But, like, this is the moment where I thought, why not try it? And it just did not. I mean, that, that's the thing for me, too. It's like, okay, if you go bold, sure, why not try? Because you could say, okay, Dermody is thinking we'll stick to what got us here. But that wasn't really what got you there. Like, every time Brian Grant played at center, it, 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 at best was, was breaking even. At worst, he was giving up a lot. It was out match to begin with. And this goes back to a story I remember when I, the first game I re- registered Brian Grant, because I was kind of young with the 2000 um, Western Conference Finals. But I remember the 2004 uh, Kobe Shaq uh, Christmas game. And the Lakers had Brian Grant covering Shaq. And I just remember going, what? Like, this is not this is not cool. Like, this isn't going to work. And, you know, you'd see Grant rubbing his chest area, huffing and puffing, looking at the refs, like, what's going on? And 
and get away from it and say, hey, why don't you try something that nobody's really trying? I mean, it really doesn't even come into the culture of the NBA for 10 or 12 more years. But like that. to me, it was just so really obvious that pulling Shaq away and making Shaq defend and creating angles of attack had been so successful before that if you maybe you go paired down and you bring you bring Dallas Shrimp in who had been you know pretty bad this whole game but like maybe you bring Bonzi Wells back in or something and you just try to get something different going but like you said like this is this is what got us here um, and yeah. I just felt like bringing Brian Grant back there was was something that they were in a tough spot already and, and doing that just didn't really give them anything that was going to get them out of a jam um, and ultimately I mean you know I, I think after that over 13 stretch they they do some things pretty well and she hits a freaking bomb uh, with about 40 seconds left when he's about four feet behind the line but that just further speaks to reinforcing of like hey let's run some pick and pop hey let's do some different things and make Shaq try and guard us and uh, yeah, like I said, like it's probably easy to do, but at the same time, it, it is just sitting on the table there. I mean, with that, I mean, real quick, and one more point. You, we mentioned this earlier, talking about how in 2020 this Portland team might be better suited to the style of play, going small, running guys. From Bonzi Wells, Steve Smith, Scotty Pippen, Stacey Ogden, Brian Grant, Rasheed Wallace, Douglas Shrimp, to Jermaine O'Neal. That's what, five, six guys between 6'5 and 6'11. And, and Bonzi playing bigger than his size. Steve Smith, probably taller than the 670s listed. And we know where Scottie Pippen is there. You already have shot creators. You have ball handlers. You have guys who can space out, aside from Grant, who can still play in certain situations. But like you mentioned, just slot Rasheed Wallace onto the five for four spells there. That it, it's, it's interesting to think about what that team could have done. You're right. It, it's, it's not fair. You know, this was the way it was played then. That game wouldn't even become to evolve. Uh, I mean, I don't even want to say that. Don Nelson was doing some crazy stuff as, as far back as the late 80s and 90s. So they could have thought about it. But the point being, it's just funny in retrospect looking at this team and going, wow, you know, you had a team that fit the traditional style of play then, but you also had like a mini roster in between that that could have been so versatile for the style of play that would have been a great um, uh, play style juxtaposed against that of the Lakers and what they were doing where they were uber traditional. Yeah, and you know, you you talk about the fact that Wallace was was struggling so mightily in that fourth quarter. Yeah, maybe getting him off the ball, maybe not having him be the primary initiator of the offense and and let him be a pick and pop threat. Yeah, that's probably good just for that specific situation and you know, the the foul drawing concerns that that Sha- that guarding Shaq that comes with guarding Shaq uh, might not have been there. You know, Rashid had, I, I believe, finished with four fouls, but we're talking, you know, basically the final three minutes or, or four minutes of the ball game. Uh, so, yeah, I, I agree with you. They, they should have been a little bit more um, willing to, to experiment there. But uh, Rashid hit a uh, hit a shot, and this was, you know, we, we talk about the questionable calls that went against, went against Portland. Corbin, I think you mentioned the, the goaltend called on Shaq on a, a shot that Rashid put up over him and and it looked like to me that Shaq got it right at its uh, at the the apex of the of the trajectory but then uh, you know that tied the game at 79 and then it really was the Kobe show you know Kobe driving into the paint drawing a foul to and knocking down the free throws then hitting an isolation jumper over Pippen and then of course the the iconic play the the lob to Shaq that's what he left it off great and honestly that, at that point it was the tide was turning. You could see it. It was it was palpable. You know, just now for the Blazers up to that moment. And yeah, it, it, that 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 
Flynn was the crescendo. Um, that that kind of broke the you know proverbial back of the Blazers. Then, and for me, I'm watching back. I'm sure we've all said this several times, but this Blazers team was such an interesting what if, as far as like what they were. You know, maybe you know, could have evolved into what they were then. Just being a sneaky deep team that played really well and, and, and ran you know the Lakers up the gamut and just couldn't close it out. And yeah, it's a shame that a lot of it goes up that game seven with with some of the with some of the calls and officiating then and of course just the worst possible time to have a collapse but for me and not even getting that point just a brief rush that's why i really like that game one where i felt like wallace was cooking and you know he to be out by the second quarter um and, and leave the blazers at advantage i'm not saying that they take that when lakers came out pretty well in that game but it's just interesting to look back and go to certain i don't know branches from this tree breaking down the series that could have changed things that could have dictated the outcome there's no doubt in my mind the lakers win Well, in Game 3 as well, you know, a, a two-point game that could have gone either way. You know, it, it really does. A lot of these seven-game series uh, that, that go the distance are determined by the, the close games. And really, you know, you mentioned Game 1 was, was close through through most of it. And then, you know, Games 3 and 7 specifically were, were uh, you know, a, a possession game here or there with under two minutes to play. And the Lakers were able to, to win both, you know, if, if Portland takes one of them. They take the series. Yeah, yeah, seriously, yeah, that's, that's what it comes down to. It's, it's, it's just, it's insane. I don't know. And, and then, and then, you know, you just start to look at. Uh, I took some notes. I just kind of went into what happens to this roster. And the, the big thing is, obviously, after this, Scotty Pippen's never quite the same. This is the last year of really, I mean, prime Scotty's post-prime Scotty, but like that yeah. second iteration, he never really contributes as a scorer as a number one option again at this level um and it, within a couple of years is retired uh, steve smith kind of on that, the back end of his of his ability to carry an offense as well um they both take a big step back they get swept by the lakers the next round one mike denley gets fired of course there's the infamous uh situation where Rashid Wallace throws a towel in Sabonis' face, and you know there are a hundred different stories about what that was about and, and who said what to whom. Um, but they also lose 17 of their last 25 going into the playoffs in 2000-2001. Um, they trade Jermaine O'Neal for Dale Davis because they need somebody to go after Shaq, and we of course know what Jermaine O'Neal goes on. We know what Jermaine O'Neal goes on to contribute as a as a pacer. Just a couple of years later, is yep. on a team that ostensibly is the best team in the league in 2005. Now, you know we, we know what happens with our test and with um, Stephen Jackson and, and all the things that happen at the Malice and the Palace. But if you look at that 2005 Pacers team, that's a really good team, and that's not so far removed that Jermaine O'Neal couldn't have been a contributor in Portland. But the, the waters were so poisoned by his relationship with Dunleavy, his uh, playing time that there was just no salvaging that point so they had to get what they can get they trade brian grant for for sean kemp who has to go to rehab uh they bring dentley shrimp out of retirement he's just never really the same and um eventually it leads to the infamous trade of rashid wallace to atlanta for one game uh, and, and then he ends up in in uh detroit winning a championship in the 0304 season but the, the what could have been is Probably this is their one shot. Uh, this is the window opens all of a sudden. The 
year before that. There's no Michael Jordan. There's no team sitting so far above the other teams. Uh, but it's difficult to see a path. It opens up in the 99-2000 season. The window's open for this season. Um, and then it really just kind of closes off for, for a myriad of different reasons. But this was a team that, a lot like the 77 team that, the, that Bill Walton's on, that for a moment they are there on the stage as one of the great teams in the league and then for a multitude of reasons of course with Walton um, it's the feed it's the breakdown of his ability and eventually the trade to LA or to San Diego but you know this is a flash in the pan team there's not a potential dynasty here but the button that it places on the career of Scottie Pippen the boost that it gives to Rasheed Wallace maybe he never gets traded and maybe he never ends up as a piston who knows Um, there's a lot of branching paths that a 2000 championship banner up in the rafters at the Rose Garden at the Moda Center as they call it now changes the careers of so many guys and like you said Corbin on the other side you're you're probably going to get two championships I mean the, the Lakers really come in the next season, and the 2001 season is one of the up there with the 17 Warriors, the 96 Bulls, the 86 Celtics as one of the all-time great rosters, one of the all-time dominant seasons. So they probably win the next two, but the the way it changes the city of Portland, the way it changes the, the Jailblazers, maybe you never get a Reuben Patterson, maybe you never get a Zach Randolph. Who knows how it goes from. Because to me, this is not really Jailblazers era. Like, to, you got Damon Stoudemire, you've got yeah. um, you've got Rashid Wallace, but you don't have Ruben Patterson, you don't have Zach Randolph, you don't have that like bucking against the city of Portland, bucking against the NBA. Bonzi has lost it. Bonzi hasn't lost it. He's still just a young guy. Um, that like anti-establishment mentality. Like and you talk, you hear those guys talking. A lot of it is just the way they felt like it was us against them, with the fans. I mean, and you know the, the race element of Portland being a ninety-five percent white city, and then a bunch of uh, African American players. Like, there's just so many things that go into that. But to me, that hasn't happened yet. Like when you look at this roster and this self-contained thing, you're like, man, this was a really good team. And then as the next year goes on. It starts to fall off. Things start to degrade. Relationships start to deteriorate. And, you know, that, that chance never presents itself. But you never know how this era goes a little bit differently if Rashid Wallace has a championship ring on his finger and the unmitigated love. Because when the city of Portland loves a guy, they love that guy. Uh, and maybe that relationship never sours to, in such a way. But I, I think that's really, like, the interesting, like, close part of this is you probably don't get another title out of it. But how much does it change the idea around these guys? Right. Yeah, and you know, you you talk about Scottie Pippen. You know, if he if he yeah. got seven rings, that's a that's a huge thing for his career. And I love your 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 idea of this being kind of a flash in the pan. And it was pretty obvious just given the age of of the roster with with Pippen and and Sabonis and even Steve Smith. Uh, you know, yeah, the the likelihood that they were going to contend even the next year, even if they won, was was unlikely. Uh, but then you you know you see you see other teams. You mentioned that Indiana team that had the the malice in the palace that were led by 
Ron Artest and Jermaine O'Neal. That seemed like a team that was destined for a championship and maybe multiple, but that just, you know, that that incident kind of tore it all down. You look at the 2002 Kings and how close that team was, but then the following season they were ready to, you know, to get revenge on the Lakers and then Chris Webber tears his ACL. So there are, there are so many of these cases where, yeah, you know, the, even, even teams that, that felt like they had a future you know, it, it kind of ends up being, for the Kings' sake, it was it was that one 2002 season that, that really was their chance. Yeah, that's true. Again, you didn't have a lot. Like they say, come for the King, best time is. You didn't have a lot of that. And some of it, unfortunately, both those series with the best opponent that would have legit been um, a, a finals you know, champion had to come down to tight game sevens of questionable refereeing. But in general, it gets to that point. There was enough of just shooting, you know, yourself in the foot and, and great what is for teams like that that are crazy. And I think this 2000 Blazers team, it gets referenced, you know, enough. It doesn't get referenced probably as much as the 2002 Kings, but of a team that, yeah, they probably wouldn't have went the way on the best case scenario, the 2011 Mavericks, where, yeah, they'll be in the contract, but they're all kind of a year older. Um, Sabonis dropped off. We already mentioned Pippen dropping off as, like, being someone who could even kind of lead the team for um, anything, not only in the locker room, but also on the floor. And, yeah, that was it. They could have at least delayed dynasty one year and got out of it and looking at that team you know trader bob uh, for the blaze at the time had really assembled a roster there that worked and almost as soon as that jermaine o'neill trade happened the next year undid most of his work and that and some internal you know disintegration there from players just kind of contributed to the demise of that blazers team that ended really before it ever started yeah, and the dominant, you know, 2001 Lakers squad that, uh, you know, you guys referenced that that uh, went, I believe, 15-1 and in the postseason. I think part of that, too, is just the, the confidence of being a championship team, of having gotten it done the previous season and having that championship medal, that experience. Uh, you know, you, you look at, say, Portland wins this series. Yeah, you know, would the Lakers have probably been the favorites in 2001? Certainly. But would they have that same level of swagger, that same dominance that they had the next year? Maybe not. Yeah, it's just, it's interesting to just kind of parse apart what that becomes because, you, like, you know, you're not going to be in a situation where you're not going to, that team was so good, so transcendent. They're not going to be knocked off the pedestal by any one loss, be it, uh, be it this year or be it the 2002 series against the Kings or, you know, ultimately what became their undoing, that that 4 championship series against uh, the, the Pistons. They were going to get there at some point, and they were probably going to get there multiple times. Um, I, even if they lose this one, they probably get there. The, the middle two years, I just have a difficult time seeing them not winning. The, the East was pretty weak for those couple of years. I mean, like if you look at, like what is it, the 2001 finals, uh, Eastern Conference finals, is a Boston team who is two years away from being two years away with a young <laughs> Paul Pierce and Antoine Walker playing in the Eastern Conference finals against Jason Kidd and then, playing uh, again against Portland. Like, there are teams that aren't quite ready in the Eastern Conference, and the Eastern Conference is not particularly deep. So you there was, there's a very long stretch uh, of, of years there where the Western Conference Finals is, if not the, the championship series or the best series, is very close to, uh, and we kind of get a letdown. Like, you know, the same thing happened in 02, that, that we have got a little bit of a letdown um, with that. Nets, oh, is it is O2 uh, Eastern Conference Finals because um, that's the Nets, the year the Nets go, and because uh, the Nets go back to back. But like that's 
that this team's going to win is basically what I'm getting at here. They're going to yep. win, even if they get knocked off the pedestal one place or the other. But I think like what it means for Portland, what it means for the legacies of so many guys is so much more interesting because we see the talent and we know what's going to happen for L.A. if it doesn't happen here. But for Portland, that moment, this is the one moment. For Sacramento, this is the one moment. Um, and, and this is amid a good run. You know, 99, Spurs win, 03, Spurs win, 05, 07, and then you got 2000, 2001, 2002. There are runs of really good Western Conference teams, and then you have the rise and fall of teams like the Mavs, like the uh, like the Suns, like the, um, the Blazers here, and of course the Kings later. Like It's really interesting, and I'm, this is why I'm really glad we did this, because it's fun to look back and say, Oh yeah, this was a really good team, and that's the like sort of the summation that I took away from this whole thing is like, oh yeah, this was a very very talented roster, um, and I'm glad I got to take the time to get into the nitty gritty and to learn about it. Yeah, Corbin and Alex, this was yeah, this was an absolute blast. Thanks so much for for doing all the prep that it takes to do these these classic pods, and, and thanks so much for coming on and, and taking the time. Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me. Uh, three man pods are tough. We had a, you know, we we had to chip through it there. Uh, but I hope you'll have me back at some point. We'll get to do it again because I had a blast prepping with it, and I had a blast just talking with you guys about all this stuff. Absolutely, we we yeah, we'd love to have you back. And uh, was there anything uh, was there anything you'd like to to plug on uh, Red Team Scouting or or anything else you got going on? No, not at the moment. We've been uh, the the shutdown has been a real life check for for both Estacio and I working and we a lot of people got laid off and then we had the opposite problem where we were both working a little bit more than we had originally anticipated so our draft prep has been a little bit slower this year um i'm definitely going to get on to the draft film and get a couple of things out here between now and now that i have the extended uh break to be able to you know get ready for the draft um i'll definitely have a chance to kind of do some catch-up scouting so just keep keep a look on that uh estakio raleigh my partner uh, on Twitter, you follow him. He's EVR1022. He, the man, loves to make spreadsheets. He just did this thing, this one of those fifteen dollar build your starting five matrixes uh, that I, I think is the best one I've seen. He really took time and went through all the years of the NBA. So give him a follow. You can follow me at Alex West Red Team, um, and you know we'll try to keep you entertained if nothing else. But Garrett Corbin can't say thank you to you guys enough. Hey, that was fun, man. Great to reunite with you here, man. This is an awesome show, and yeah, we made it work. This is this is a lot of fun. Thanks so much for listening to Duncan Dynasty. Please, if you can, if you have a moment, go to iTunes and uh, give us a rating and review, preferably five stars. And uh, if you could give any thoughts about what you like about the show, that would be much appreciated. We are also on Spotify, so. Uh, you can give us a rating on there as well. If you'd like to find some other content outside of this podcast, you can find me on Twitter, at Garrett Bougay. That's G-A-R-R-E-T-T-B-U-G-A-Y. I will be uh, tweeting various uh, NBA thoughts as well as some, some thoughts on some other uh, interests of mine, including soccer and film and television, so... Uh, if you're looking for some of my takes throughout the, the course of the week, you can find me there. You can find my co-host Corbin Ford on Twitter at CorbinNBA. That's C-O-R-B-A-N-N-B-A. So uh, he, uh, he does, a, d- does a good job on Twitter as well. He's very active. 
Uh, Corbin also is the site expert for the fan-sided website Valley of the Sun, which talks all things Phoenix Suns. So you can check out uh, what he's doing there. I'm also doing uh, some work as a contributor for Rip City Project, which uh, does all things Blazers. So if you're looking for some written content, you can check those websites out. Corbin also does his own pod on the side called NBA Today. Uh, he, uh, he does some, some fun work over there, so, so please, I encourage you to check that out. But uh, thanks so much again for, for listening, and have a great rest of your day.